Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, where we invite our leading historians to rise up before the myth gets inflated out of control. The podcast that seeks to restore order amongst the chaos. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm rounding off today our episodes, our special episodes, coming from and around the Gloucester History Festival. A festival that offers 150 talks over two weeks, coming from the beautiful setting of Blackfriars Priory in the heart of Gloucester. And for our final interview of the festival special series, I am joined by historian, author, renowned expert on the history of the Third Reich, and I'm glad to say a northerner in amongst all these southern accents. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Frank McDonough. Frank, welcome to History Rage. Welcome. So before we kick in then, we talked a little bit about you before I started to press record, but could you give us a bit of a background about yourself, your book, and also your thoughts on Gloucester and the History Festival? Well, I'm, I'm a historian. I was born in Liverpool. Um, and I got interested in history when I found out that my great uncle had been killed in the First World War and my father told me he'd been killed by Germans. So I started to get interested in German history and why did those wars come about? Um, and later I read a book called uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Right by William Shire, and it's out of date now, we know that. But, you know, I, I, I sort of liked the whole atmosphere of uh, Weimar and the Third Reich, um, and that, that made me go towards, you know, European and German history when I went, uh, eventually went to university. I actually left school at 15 without any qualifications. I hated school. And uh, my favourite record in the last year I was there was called Schools Out by Alice Cooper. <laughs> and I never thought I'd be an academic. I went into it. My friend got a job in an office, so I followed him because he had all smart clobber and all that. And so I was working in an office. I was like Bob Cratchit, really. Um, you know, filling out shipping orders and insurance and all of this. And then I got made redundant, and then I found out that you could go back and do your O-levels and your A-levels. So that's what I did, did my O-levels in one year. 
did my A-levels in one year. And so I decided, well, I'll go to Oxford. So I went to Oxford and I picked out the most famous college I'd ever heard about because I'd read the novels by Lord Peter Vimsey. <laughs> <laughs> he was at Balliol College. He was going on about Balliol. And so I went to Balliol College, Oxford. I was actually there at the time. Uh, Boris Johnson was there, and I, I knew him. You know, sort of. <laughs> it's amazing that late came the prime minister, but I knew him. He was in my, you know, he's just a year ahead of me. I think he was because he was doing um, classics because it's a four-year degree. And so I came out, and I got a, I got a job back in Liverpool. My wife had a job in Liverpool. She worked in FE, and I got a job um, at what is Liverpool John Moores University. And I was there for like 32 years. I really enjoyed it, you know, because I was teaching local people, and they could see me as a role model. And eventually I got promoted and I became, became a professor, which I, I was very proud of, you know, to, to come from a very poor background. In Liverpool, I end up as a professor. You know, it's it's a great, uh, great achievement. And things that that happened to me, you know, like my books got translated into different languages. And I remember getting the one in French, and I thought, God, this is this is fantastic. Here I am, a scouser being translated into French. How does that work? <laughs> you know, that's like explaining <laughs> Ken Dodd to an American. <laughs> okay, so we met up via the Gloucester History Festival, and I can see that you've done quite the festival circuit over the course of at least the last three months. I mean, we've seen you at Chalk Valley, seen at We Have Ways Fest, and seen you at Gloucester. As we're here as part of the Gloucester History Festival, would you give us your thoughts on the festival? Oh, it's a fantastic event. It's um, it's organised by Janina Ramirez, who's a fantastic person. She's such a enthusiast over history and uh, you know she first invited me to this I think I came in 2019 before the pandemic uh, I, I loved it I thought it was great mm. I liked the setting you know the sort of heavenly setting that it's got and there's a great green room um, and all the people who are around there I mean there's a lady called Margaret who follows me on Twitter and Chris who's from you know he's from Liverpool he also is part of the team that uh, organise, and you get big names, you know, lots of famous historians are sitting there in the green room. When I was in the green room, Tom Holland had just come in and mm. um, Katya Hoyer had just finished her talk. That was on Saturday. Yeah, they do nicely take care of you as well. I mean, this was like my first green room experience and I thought, oh God, this is joyous. I mean, I could have happily fallen asleep on that sofa. Yeah, you nabbed the sofa. <laughs> yep, Yorkshireman, get in first while it's yeah. free. So let's kick off today then, the rage, the thing that you've come here to talk about. So today, Frank, what is the one thing you wish everyone would just stop believing or get over? I think in relation to uh, to Weimar Germany, I, w- I wish they'd stop reading these biographies of Hitler. <laughs> because they drive me mad because they take his life, they divorce it from the context of w- when he lived in Weimar, when he was a very unknown uh, politician. And they elevate it up to if everyone was listening to everything he did and they weren't. So it's a, a real distortion. It's like looking at the Beatles story and just focusing on the Hamburg period when nobody has got any information on it or very little information on it, just eyewitness accounts. So that's what that gets on my nerves, these the biographies, because the biogra- mm. a biography obviously focuses on the individual. 
and it focuses away from the general history of the period. Uh, I got this when I did my book, The Hitler Years, and people say, oh, it's a biography. I said, it's not a biography of Hitler. It's a history of Germany in the period when Hitler was the leader. It's about society and politics and culture. And, you know, and that's the problem with the, these biographies are sort of strangled. I think mm. they've sort of strangled the history of Hitler, you know, and taken it down into his own personal life. And the funny thing is that you get the biographies and they say, uh, oh, this isn't a, uh, this is not a biography. Don't expect to hear anything about it. Well, yeah, we know that because he didn't leave any letters. He, did, he didn't leave any diaries, uh, famously the fake diaries, you know, and he wrote very few letters as well. So you're going to write a biography. I've written a biography. It was of Sophie Shaw. She left diaries and letters. You can write a biography about a person then, understand them. You can't write a biography of Hitler because he's a mysterious character and a secretive character. And all you've got is what his cronies thought about him or various eyewitnesses. And that's why, I mean, they are, the, the mm. biographies of Hitler, I think, in general, are pretty much a fraud. Because what you do, you're buying a book that says it's a biography and yet there are no letters, diaries, or personal things about it. And it's a history. It's just a history of Germany dressed up as a biography. So that's my big beef about the way we go into the Third Reich. We go into it via these biographies rather than the history of uh, of Weimar, especially what the other beef I've got while I'm at it is... You're on a roll. <laughs> on a roll. <laughs> the... Books on Weimar tend to be 90%, over 90% are about culture. So they're about film, they're about, you know, books, they're, they're about art, uh, they're about Bauhaus. But they're not about the political history. You won't find anything about what's going on in Parliament and in the Reichstag. And in many cases, that's where, you know, all the big events are happening are in the Reichstag. The Reichstag is the main parliamentary chamber at the time so that's a bit of a beef as well so when i came to write this book i wanted to redress that i wanted a, a book yeah. that was about weimar not hitler and i wanted a book that was about the politics and was about society and not about just about culture so that's the where i came from when i started to write this book i thought if i can write the unknown bit of weimar then people are going to get into it. They're going to understand why Hitler happened. Because once you go into the politics of Weimar, you understand that there was a political vacuum there yeah. for, a, for a strong, charismatic leader. That was what was missing. Yeah, absolutely. Because everything, everything I see about Weimar, I mean, I'll confess, you know, I've not gotten into it in that much detail, but you tend to get this thing that Weimar is just massive inflation, loads of jazz clubs, Hitler. And actually, it's so much more bigger than that, so much more intricate. Everything plays its own particular part. I'll let you go into the graphics of it. So let's get, let's get in there. Well, I think Weimar is really broken up into sort of three periods, really. The first period is the period from 1918 to 1924. And in that period, so much goes on in that period. It's amazing. That, that the system survived, the Weimar did survive, you know, because in that period you've got uh, the the announcement of, of the Weimar Republic, that was on the 9th of November, 1918. 
in Berlin uh, by a guy called Philippe Scheidemann. Um, he declared from the right chancellery that, that there was a republic declared. The Kaiser had, had abdicated. Well, he'd sort of abdicated. They announced he'd abdicated, but in reality he hadn't abdicated. They had to sort of force him onto a train and send him to Holland. He eventually abdicated three uh, weeks later. But the system that they wanted to establish, that was a bit of a debate over what type of system they were going to have. The Social Democratic Party were the dominant party in the Reichstag, and their leader, Friedrich Ebert, he sort of led them into this idea they would have a democracy, you know, a fully-fledged democracy with a new constitution. But on the left, extreme left of, of the Social Democratic Party, was the United Social Democrats, who eventually became the Spartacus and the Communist Party. And they were led by two famous figures, Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. And they wanted um, a revolution on the style of the Soviet Union. So they wanted workers' councils, you know, Soviets, that the workers' councils would run the country. A bit far-fetched, really. They decided to join in a little coalition, but only lasted about eight weeks and then it blew apart when the Spartacus decided they could take over the Social Democrats and form their own government through a revolution. So they started the revolution in January 1919. It was called the Spartacus Revolt. They didn't get in control of much. They got in control of a few government buildings in Berlin and they seized the Social Democratic newspaper as well. So the Herbert government nominally democratic, uh, socialist in outlook. It, it hasn't got any troops because the, you know, because of the, 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 the end of the war, the Allies won't let Germans use troops to put down revolutions. So they haven't got m- many options, really. The only option they've got is to recruit the Freikorps. These are sort of ex-soldiers running around with nothing to do, fully armed from the war, um, and they, they act as a kind of Wagner group. So Airbase recruits them to put down the Spartacus revolt, and that's what they do very brutally. Uh, first of all, they arrest Rosa Luxemburg, shoot her in the back of the head, throw her in a canal. Then they arrest Liebnik. They shoot him in the tear garden, and he's placed his body is placed outside of an ambulance station, and the Spartacus result, revolt you know, unravels. Uh, so the first real test of the regime is surpassed, but the problem is the socialists have used a right-wing group of militarists who have a swastika on their helmets to put down their own wing, socialist wing of their own party. So that creates a schism on the left. Mm. The, the communists and the social democrats will not work together. This is a problem. It becomes a problem later in the Weimar period because the communists end up with 100 seats. So really, to try and form a coalition to stop Hitler, you can't recruit the communists to that to that mission. So that that's a real problem in the long term. But that's just one problem of the early Weimar period. Then you've got the Versailles Treaty. The Versailles Treaty is the treaty that decides Germany's fate for losing the First World War. I don't know what the Germans wanted. They sort of thought that they were going to get like a a good peace settlement where people just, you know, like a cricket match where they go to the end and say, well done, chaps, well done, go back to your, you know, go back to your country and don't make war with anyone again. No, 
they had decimated France and Belgium. All the war was forced there and everything was destroyed. Industry was destroyed. And the French said, look, you've got to pay for this war, consequences of this war. And Britain agreed. They, they, they set up a scale of payments, 70% of them would go to France. So you can see it was it was a treaty that was set up for France to get money out of Germany, really. Mm. Uh, Britain was only getting 30 20% anyway, so it wasn't sort of as crucial for Britain as it was for France, and its country hadn't been decimated by the war. So the, the French took a belligerent attitude that made Germany pay. Now, what the Allies did was in the Versailles Treaty, they decided to sort of legitimise taking what were called reparations compensation. And they did this by a mechanism in Article 231. You've probably heard of it, of the Versailles Treaty. This was the, the clause that made Germany guilty, solely guilty for starting the First World War. And the Germans were saying, nobody thinks only us started the First World War. Even respect to the historians say it was, you know, six of one and half a dozen of the other, you know. So you can't just blame it all on us. And so, and also on top, they, they levied 132 billion gold marks in reparations to be paid in instalments of 3 million every year until 1983. Uh, on top of that, uh, we would seize 12% of German exports. So, you know, if they if they exported, you know, 100 tonnes of coal, we would take 12% of that. So it's a quite, you know, it's quite a lot of money, really. Yeah. Um, and, and so that became a problem. How was Germany going to pay? And Germany said, look, we can't pay. We've got no money. And the other part of it was that German banks, if they know now, you know, Governments can lend money because they issue bonds. Mm -hmm. What they do is they say, "I'll I'll sell you a bond, and in ten years' time you'll get five percent for it, right?" And people buy them on that basis because yeah. they pay the interest out on them monthly. That's that's a world thing now. Any country can do it now. Back then, Germany was really sort of you know it was blacklisted from from issuing bonds on the international market. It couldn't get loans from Wall Street or London. And its own banks didn't have enough money to lend to the German government. So they they didn't have money. They didn't have no any fluidity to get loans to pay. So they didn't have money. So what do you do? You've got to pay three three million uh, gold marks. You haven't got it. What do you do? You don't pay. So they didn't pay. They became a bad creditor. And the French were getting het up about this, you know, year after year. It was 1921 when the payments were, 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 were issued and the Germans still weren't paying in 1923. So in January 1923, the French had had enough. They sent in their army to the Ruhr, the industrial area, and proceeded to try and take commodities for the three, the three billion yeah. marks worth of commodities now, how did the German government respond? Because the German government had been, no, we're not going to pay. We can't pay. Give us some money. We can't pay. The German government responded in a very rage-like way. They said, um, we're going to employ a policy of passive resistance. So we're not going to work with you. We're going to go on strike. We're going to, we're going to tell the workers in the Ruhr to go on strike. And we just had furlough, didn't we? Do you remember furlough from, oh, yeah. the, from the lockdown? 
But in in the uh, raw occupation, the German government invented furlough. They paid the people to do nothing and stay at home. And so the French were not getting any of the commodities. It was a, a bit of a disaster, really. But it was costing the Germans a load of money because the only way they could pay was to print money. And that's what they did in 1923. They started printing money. And they created 100 factories that just printed banknotes. And so we all know about the great inflation. It's on the front cover of my book, isn't it, mm-hmm. where the kids are playing with, are making a, a kind of pyramid out of um, useless banknotes. But everybody had a story about inflation. There was one Munich woman um, who, dragged a, who was dragging a suitcase full of banknotes into the shop to pay for her shopping. So she left the suitcase with the banknotes outside the shop and she went in to get her shopping. When she came out, the suitcase had gone and the banknotes were all over the pavement because <laughs> the suitcase was the suitcase was worth more than the banknotes. So it was just ridiculous. How are you going to get out of this? In the end, common sense prevailed because um, Gustav Stresemann, he became the chancellor and he said, look, we can't go on with this furlough scheme because it's costing 41 million a day to get people to do nothing. We're going to have to stop it. So he said that, that, that they were giving up the policy of, in the September, he said, we're giving up the policy of passive resistance and we want some kind of agreement with the Allies on the basis of they appoint experts chaired by an independent expert from America uh, to look at our ability to pay. And they did. They they uh, appointed a guy called Charles Dawes, and he formed the famous Dawes Committee. Mm. And this was made up of two um, two American bankers, him and J.P. Morgan, who everybody knows, oh, yeah. the most famous banker who's ever lived. And uh, also one banker, famous banker from each of the Allied nations. So that would be a, a banker from Britain, banker from France, banker from Belgium, Italy, and Japan. And they, they came up with what was called the Dawes Plan. And the Dawes Plan ended the inflation by creating, by suggesting they create a new currency called the Rentenmark. So the old currency was just done away with, so everything was wiped out. So if you had savings or whatever, they were just wiped out. And then they replaced that with the, what became the German Mark. So what year are we looking at here? 1924, there was the Dawes Plan was announced. So that's when... The, the, the economy then, you get a period of stability in Weimar then from 24 to 29 uh, in, in that in that period. But it wasn't just um, the problems with the economy, which were terrible enough. You know, there were so many other uh, revolutions. I mentioned just before the, the Spartacus revolt, but in 1919 there was a revolt in Munich um, and, and that was uh, after the assassination of Kers Eisner. There were lots of political assassinations of, uh, at this time uh, carried out by right-wing right, right groups. Uh, one of them was of um, uh, Matthias Herzberger. He'd signed the armistice, so he was known as a November criminal, as the uh, right-wing would call him. And there also was uh, Walter Rathenau. He was the foreign minister. He was gunned down. In, in 1922, he just signed the Treaty of Rapallo with Russia, which was unpopular with right-wing groups. So there was political assassinations. That coup in Munich after Eisner died turned into a revolution where the communists took over. First of all, this kind of crazy communist regime known as the Poets regime. And that was uh, very funny because they had uh, 
they had a guy they made the foreign minister and he he complained that the the former uh, SPD uh, Prime Minister Hoffman had taken away the key to the toilet. <laughs> he didn't like uh, bells, so he, he unplugged all of the phone lines. Um, he declared war on Switzerland because <laughs> he said they hadn't uh, given him any railway carriages. And uh, he was just bonkers. And, and then the, the leader of it... Uh, the, one of the leaders, Ernst Toller, he came back and he said, he's clearly gone raving mad. We need to put him in a sanatorium. And he got him to sign a, a, a resignation speech, which he said, I've been asked to resign and I will do this for the revolution. So that was crazy. And then they got a more brutal uh, Red Army regime uh, led by Eugene Levine. And they, they were brutal over the next week. They started to arbitrarily kill people. They took a group of people from the Tool Society. Uh, this was from that group came the guy who'd killed Eisner, and uh, they kept them in a gymnasium, a school. It was a grammar school. German grammar schools are called gymnasiums. And uh, they killed them one by one, about 11, and they mutilated them, and that, that really horrified the local uh, uh, community. And once again, Herbert thought, how are we going to put down this revolution? He called on, and guess what? The Freikorps again. The Wagner group of its day, they go in, and of course they de they destroy the communists. They kill about 400 of them. The key significance of that, the, the Munich revolt there of, of 1919, uh, is that Bavaria now became ultra-right wing. It became a citadel. If you were like on the run from the Berlin government, you could get, get, you could get sort of asylum in Bavaria at that time. And who was in Bavaria? Adolf Hitler. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was the perfect place for Adolf Hitler. And of course, he decided he'd try and overthrow the Weimar Republic in 1923, just after the great inflation was starting to come under control. And he had this idea of he was going to overtake the local Bavarian government led by Gustav von Kahr, and he was going to march to Berlin and overthrow the the, uh, the German democratic government. Uh, he, he was copying really what Mussolini had done in the year before, but it was never a feasible project. All he did was he ran into the beer hall, jumped on a chair, fired a gun into the ceiling and shouted, the German revolution is underway. Then he went into a back room to discuss it with these sorts of co-conspirators. And then it all broke down the same night. Um, you know, the army and this, the local uh, police force was loyal 
to the regime. Uh, and the next day he did this futile walk towards the Feldenhalle in the centre of Munich and 16 of the Nazis were shot by the police outside the Feldenhalle. Four policemen were killed as well. And Hitler, of course, was famously arrested. He was put on trial in 1924. He was given five years and uh, he only served about nine months of that sentence and he was out again. But he, his career looked like it was over then in 1924. And so there was a period of stability then hmm. uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in Weimar in that period. Largely due to a guy probably unknown to your listeners. He's a guy called Gustav Stresemann. And in the book, what's sort of poignant about the book is I, I sort of catalogue, because I've got his diaries and his letters and that, I can catalogue the fact that he was always ill. He was always in a sanitarium. Even the German chancellors come to visit him. So you have these sort of scenes where they're discussing foreign policy, but he's got to sort of take his medicine, you know, and uh, his doctor says he's got to have a lie down for 10 minutes before he resumes this. That even happens at the League of Nations and all these other. What he does is he, he, he decides, he says in his diary, he says, the only way we're going to get anywhere in, right now is get on better with the French. Yeah. Because unless Germany can get on better with the French, we're going to constantly have this problem of the French wanting to come in to invade, fearing a, a war of revenge, etc. So he said, we've got to get on with the French. And he said, I think the best way is we, that we guarantee the Western frontiers. We sign a treaty saying we guarantee the Western frontiers and the demilitarization of the Ruhr, which was part of the, of the Treaty of Versailles. So they signed something called the Locarno Treaties in 1925. Now, these are groundbreaking... They do accept the demilitarization of the Rhineland. They accept the, the loss of territory as well from Versailles. They also accept the reparations payments. They'll have to pay them. They say they won't alter the eastern frontiers by force. But, of course, they don't rule out maybe a referendum or something like that. But they're saying they're not going to alter the eastern uh, frontiers. And that includes what was called the Polish Corridor, which cut off East Prussia and Danzig which was a German port that was made a League of Nations uh, city. So that was a great period. You know, they called it the Locarno Honeymoon. Then Stresemann takes Germany into the League of Nations. So Germany's now part of the international club, if you like, for the first time, because they were banned from being part, them and the Soviet Union were banned from being members of the League of Nations. I think the Soviet Union didn't join until 1934. Um, and then they sign, he signs the Kellogg Briand Pact. This is a pact which renounces war as an instrument of policy. And the Times, the, the, the London newspaper says, this is amazing. Here's a German statesman signing a treaty saying he renounces war. This is the country that caused the First World War. That was the most militaristic country before the First World War. So people in 1928 were thinking, well, things are good now in Germany. Oh, Germany's settled down. Uh, its economy has become more stable. Uh, mm -hmm. Not its rural economy, though. Its rural economy was still pretty, pretty unstable. But, you know, people were saying it's gone. But, but Stressman did warn them. He said, you know, the German economy is solely based on these short-term loans from America. And he says, if they are pulled out, then we're dancing on a volcano here. You know, our industry is going to crash almost straight away. 1928, where's Hitler? 
he's still the leader of this unknown extreme right-wing nationalist party. In the election of that year, he gains uh, only 2.8% of the votes. Only 800,000 people are voting for Hitler at, at that stage of, of the proceedings. Um, and then two things happen to change things in favour of Hitler. First of all, he gets recruited to uh, be part of a campaign against the Young Plan, which is the the, uh, the the plan that will succeed, the the Dawes plan in, in getting Germany to pay reparations. And he gets a higher profile because he joins with a guy called Alfred Hugenberg. He's the leader of the German National People's Party, the DNVP. And they join together and he's, he's like a kind of a Rupert Murdoch of his day. He owns newspapers. He owns the famous film studios. Ufa makes all the famous silent films. Um, and he gives Hitler enormous coverage in his newspapers. He owns about 400 local titles around Germany. So Hitler becomes more well-known that year. And then on the 3rd of October, uh, Gustav Stressemann dies of a, of a massive stroke at his home. So there goes the big sort of international politician that Germany has got. He's off the scene. You know, he's off of making influence around the government as well. He's been the foreign minister for six years. So he's a sort of a form of stability in a, an unstable government because in Weimar, there are 20 different coalition governments from 1918 to 1933, 12 different chancellors, eight different national elections. And he's a, a rock of stability then on the 29th of October 1929, the Wall Street crash happens. Yeah. And so that has an impact. doesn't impact on Germany straight away. It takes a couple of years, but then it does. And Germany's unemployment in industrial areas goes up to 6 million. Yeah, so that's when, when we hear about the economy biting. Because it's interesting that you say this, because we always talk about the hyperinflation but by the time Hitler actually becomes anything, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. And also the Wall Street crash, when Hitler breaks through in 1930, the Wall Street crash isn't having an impact in the areas that he breaks through. So again, this idea of the Wall Street crash causing Hitler, it's bollocks. It's not true. It's not true. If the Wall Street crash was true, then Hitler would have won seats in the industrial areas in 1930 if the Wall Street crash was the reason. But wasn't the communists won, won those seats and the Social Democrats won those seats? So it wasn't as if the people who were losing their jobs were moving to Hitler. That's the misconception. The misconception is the people who lost their jobs moved to Hitler. They didn't. It, that's not the way it happened. It happened in the following way. President Hindenburg decided that Weimar democracy didn't work. So he uh, decided he'd do away with the Reichstag. And what he'd do is he'd form his own presidential cabinet um, of a, of a hand-picked chancellor who would go to the Reichstag to put through legislation. And if the Reichstag voted it down, he'd pass it through presidential decrees under Article 48 of the Constitution. This was a major flaw in the German Constitution, which was wholly democratic. In outlook, but this Article 48 allowed someone undemocratic like President Hindenburg, who came to power in 1925, 
to undermine democracy. He literally destroyed democracy in March by deciding he'd have these presidential cabinets. The first chancellor was uh, Heinrich Bruning. He was of the Catholic Centre Party. He wasn't even its leader. He was its speaker in, in the Reichstag. And he became the sort of austerity chancellor. He became known as the uh, the coroner because he, he looked like an undertaker. He acted like an, <laughs> he acted like an undertaker, <laughs> burying the German economy. And he was into, uh, I mean, we've seen austerity, what it does. Cuts down government, doesn't it? Cuts down workers, civil servants, all the rest of it. And he went for it big time. You know, he cut about 25% of the workforce. He brought in wage reductions for public sector workers of 20%. Ooh. I mean, look, at imagine that today. <laughs> you know, the, you've got everyone trying to get a pay rise. Imagine that if, if the government was in power saying, we want you to have a 20% pay cut. Yeah, I mean, I work public sector and our union has just done a strike ballot to decline an 8% pay raise. So yeah. what they do with a 20% pay cut doesn't even bear thinking about. Exactly. So... What he does is he, he goes to the Reichstag. He's forgotten. <laughs> Bruning has forgotten that the Reichstag still has, and, and Hindenburg, the Reichstag still has certain powers. One power it's got is to call a vote of no confidence in the Chancellor. And that's what they do. And he loses it. Now, it says that if there's a vote of no confidence goes against the Chancellor, there has to be an election in 60 days. So in 1930... He has to call an election. And Hitler is actually rising in local elections. His, his vote numbers are going up. So Hitler's big breakthrough is in September 1930. And at that election, he goes from 2.8% to 19.7% and 107 seats from 12 seats. You know, now, he, now he's the second, he's the leader of the second most popular political party mm. in Germany. Um, where does he break through? Because this is important in that, that kind of myth of the Wall Street crash. He breaks through in areas where there is no industry, where they, they haven't had the impact of the Wall Street crash. He breaks through in rural areas and specific rural areas. They're Protestant. They have a population of less than 5,000 people and they're rural and agricultural in the in the economy and um, when you look at who he gets his votes from in 1930 he gets 24% from pensioners why pensioners because in the great inflation something that happened three or four years before yeah. their savings were wiped out I mean, you know, I've got savings probably you've got when you're old you have savings you know the idea that I'm just retired and my savings get wiped out. That's not a good a good prospect, is it? That would leave you thing. I've worked all them years and it's all gone. So they switch over 24%. 24% are people who've never voted in an election before. What? How did that happen? It happened because Joseph Goebbels became the leader of propaganda and he targeted these rural areas with propaganda. He created, you know, special um, cards, electoral cards with occupations on, and he'd write pamphlets, you know, dedicated to your name, your area, your occupation. He'd put it through your, through your letterbox. They created a speaker's bureau. It wasn't that Hitler went up around all these little tiny towns giving speeches. They created mini Hitlers 
who could replicate his speakers and give, give the speeches. So this was amazing, you know, to go from nothing to 107 seats. People were shaking their heads. How did it happen? He gained 24% from the DNVP, the German National People's Party as well. And who were the type of people? They were self-employed people mainly. Uh, so they were plumbers, you know, builders, people who had small holdings, brewers, that type of people. They were the people initially who voted for Hitler. As you can see, there's no working class industrial workers there because there is no industry there. So he breaks through there first, which is interesting, really, that that's the place he he lands on the national stage. Now everyone's terrified now. Once Hitler appears, then it's it's... It almost is like Beatlemania. Everyone's running around like headless chickens. Where did he come from? What's happening? The Allies are scared. Oh, God, this Germany's going to go into a, a one-party dictatorship. And that was when he had 107 seats. And then Bruning's continual austerity makes him even more unpopular. And Hitler decides now, hey, I know where to go next. The middle class in the big cities. So he targets his next sort of propaganda blitz on them. And they tend to be, you know, university lecturers, doctors. Think of doctors. Doctors mm. were the backbone of Nazism. They were the people who did the experiments in the, in the camps. They move over. Teachers. Teachers are the backbone of, of, of uh, Nazi support as well. Students. You wouldn't think students would be like, no, not now. It's not like most students are sort of left-wing now. Then all the students were Nazis. It was, you know, they, they took over the campuses. They took over the professions, doctors, lawyers. These all became Nazis in that period. White collar workers as well. Women, women who also worked, uh, you know, worked in white collar occupations. They moved over. And these were people who they still had a job, but they thought their job would go if they didn't switch to the Nazis. So in 1932, when he goes to the electorate then, that's his massive breakthrough. He gets 32, uh, sorry, um, 37.2% of, of voters vote for Hitler. Uh, his seats go up to 232. This is the highest number anyone's ever got in a Reichstag election ever. Uh, he's the, he's the most popular civilian leader. He's the most popular. He has, he's the leader of the most popular party now. They've overtaken the, the social Democrats. So he's been put in that place. Who put him in that place? And this is where, you know, we're talking about elections, aren't we? Because it's in the wind and what what difference does your vote make? You know what? Your vote makes a, a real big difference because here's what it does. 13.7 million people vote for Hitler. He's now placed in a position where he's going to be offered the chancellorship. Can't be avoided. Who's to blame? The voters. The voters are to blame. So when people go on about, oh, God, bloody Boris Johnson, yeah, you voted for him. <laughs> you know, you've got to take responsibility. I mean, yeah, oh, he's a monster, Boris Johnson. Who did you vote for the last like, Oh, Boris Johnson. No, oh, but only because of Brexit. You know, but, you know, who you vote for changes society, in this case, massively. Because then Hindenburg offers him, he doesn't want him to be chancellor because he thinks he'll create a dictatorship. Hindenburg wants a, a chancellor he can control. Can you see? He wants one. He doesn't think he can control Hitler. Not that he doesn't dislike his right-wing sort of platform. 
Um, so he puts in a guy called Franz von Papen. He's even less popular than Bruning, if you can imagine. He's like a, a baron, a, a Catholic baron who's a businessman. He's been thrown out of the Catholic centre party because he's become chancellor. And he's, they called him a Nazi in a pinstripe suit. And he wants to bring Hitler into power, but as vice chancellor. And that's offered to him in August of uh, 1932. And Hitler turns it down. He says, I want to be chancellor and nothing else. And so Hitler sort of, that's his position. Another election's called because Franz von Papen's government falls from power in November. And Hitler's votes go down by two million then yeah. in that election. So his support is that he's actually peaked now. But Franz von Papen believes he's been stabbed in the back by the next chancellor, General von Schleicher. And so he decides to overthrow him. So he, he, he enters in, in January 1933. He enters into secret negotiations with Hitler. And Hitler, and then he persuades Hindenburg that he can control him. He says to Hindenburg, we can control him. We'll surround him by conservatives so he can't do anything. And he says, you mark my words in six months. We'll have him squeaking in the corner like a mouse or some mouse. And people did underestimate Hitler. You know, that was the problem, really, all the way through his career. He was underestimated by people. The communist leader, Ernst Thalmann, he, he writes in his diary on the 30th of January, 1933. So Hitler's going to become chancellor. He'll only last three weeks. I'm off to Lichtenberg to play Skittles. Two months later, he's in a concentration camp. And in 1944, Hitler orders his execution. Well, thank you very much for that, Frank. That was... Well, I had a laundry list of questions here that you've just answered in such free flow. That was brilliant. Thank you very much. That's it. I've covered it. I mean, that was a complete lecture off the top of my head. <laughs> so if out there you'd like to know more about this subject, then you can and should start by reading Frank's book, The Weimar Years. We're going to have links to where you can get that in the show notes. You can follow Frank on Twitter at FXMC1957. But once again, Frank, Thank you very much for sparing us the time. Thanks, Paul. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. That rounds off our festival specials, at least for now, but we do hope to be back in April. If you've not managed to make it this year, then the festival returns twice in 2024. Those dates are the 12th of April to the 14th of April and the 7th of September to the 22nd. You can sign up to the festival mailing list at gloucesterhistoryfestival.co.uk and you can follow them on Twitter at GlossHisFest. If you're loving this, then please follow us on Twitter at HistoryRage and support us on Patreon if you would be so kind. In return for your cherished £5 per month, we will give you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage but until our next rage stay angry bye bye